You're going to see on the screen, uh, human fear is described as this. It's a feeling of agitation. It's a feeling of anxiety caused by the presence or imminence of danger. We know what fear is like. But then holy fear is extreme reverence or awe as towards a supreme power. So who is in charge of Pua and Shipra's life? Was it Pharaoh who represented the world, or was it God? See, Pua and, and Shipra actually had a much harder decision than any of us will. In the face of death, not peers, not friends, not family, in the face of death, they actually chose God. They had a holy fear. See, Pua and Shipra were accountable not only for themselves, but for all of the Hebrew midwives. Their handling of this terrible request was critical. When Pharaoh realized that the Hebrew ladies were allowing the boys to live, he called the two midwives, Shipra and Pua, in for an explanation. Pua and Shipra probably had told the other midwives what Pharaoh had ordered. The the women had decided to procrastinate until after all the births and thus not be able to kill the children at birth. The solution that we come to understand was so wise. But it took an enormous amount of courage to execute such a plan, which, if it didn't work out, probably would have meant death for Shipra and Pua. They exhibited a godly discipline that wasn't developed overnight. See, that's the key. Perhaps this solution was an answer to constant prayer on their behalf. The faith that it took to actually carry out a scheme wasn't shallow. I believe that it was developed from years of prayer and worship. I believe that they not only leaned on God, but they also leaned on each other. So from our first story, here's the question for us. What kind of fear do you have in your life? Is it that fear that makes you agitated, or is it that holy fear that causes you to to worship? Well, let's take a minute and look at the mother of Mary, okay? I mean, the mother of Moses, sorry. A mother who understood a way higher calling. If you have your Bibles, just go one chapter, Exodus chapter 2, verse One we're going to look at. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it, put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile, His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Verse 5, Then Pharaoh's daughter came down to the Nile to bathe. Her attendants were walking her along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. I I want you to look at verse 3 just for a second. There's some powerful words there. She could hide him no longer. Mother of Moses, Jehochebed is her name, mustered enough strength to take care of her son Moses for just three months. 
And after the threatening, the pressure, the fear, the stress, the danger were way too much for her to handle, she became worried that the life of her baby was in jeopardy. It was now that she decided, let's put him in a basket and let him go. All right, friends, how about you? Are you holding on to your basket and your own strength? It could be your job. It could be your vision. It could be family, relationship, bitterness, anger, child, business, and so much more. It was her wholehearted surrender that touched God. She had no clue that Pharaoh's daughter would spot the child. But her faith was strong and she trusted God to do the rest. See, there comes a time in our life when we've got to take decisions that might not be comfortable. They might not even be comprehensible. But we need to know the will of God and move on. See, Moses and his mother surrendered to the plans of God and went through the path of loneliness, uncertainty, pain, and agony. I believe God had a record of their pain and and commitment. See, this led to Moses actually being a great leader of the people of Israel. Do you remember where this started? It started with a mom letting go of the basket with her baby. So here's the question from Moses' mom. What do you need to surrender today? What do you need to let go of? Well, let's look at Sarah, who had a change of heart. Go back one book, Genesis. Genesis chapter 18. In verse 9, it says this in Genesis 18. Where is your wife Sarah? Well, she's there in the tent. Verse 10, then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah, picture this, was listening at the entrance of the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was way past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out, And my Lord, my husband is so old. Will I now have this pleasure? (laughs) Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did your wife laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm this old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at an appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Verse 15, Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did. I want you to just listen to this. It'll be on the screen. Hebrews 11 in the New Testament. In Hebrews 11, it's the the Hall of Fame. It's like if we went to the, the Hall of Fame and saw all the great characters in the Bible. Hebrews 11, Sarah makes an appearance in the Hall of Fame. And by faith, Sarah, who is way past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. You see, for faith, our faith to actually work, it has to be personal. See, Sarah couldn't get pers- she couldn't get pregnant or she couldn't get by on Abraham's faith. 
It took her own personal faith. See, Sarah heard Abraham talking about a son and determined that she was going to make it happen. You know, moms, they make a solution. And so Sarah went, you know what, I'm going to pass her to my maidservant Hagar. Hagar can be Abraham's second wife. And we know what a terrible mistake that was. Sarah has to develop her own faith if she's going to bear the promised son. We understand that without her own faith in God's promise, Abraham's faith wouldn't get her pregnant. For God will, for God will not use an unwilling subject. See, chances are good that you and I won't see a miracle in our own life on somebody else's faith. God doesn't force himself on anyone. He waits. He encourages. He enables our faith so you and I need to become people who live by faith. See, when our faith becomes genuine, the God of the impossible steps up to the plate. Because for faith to work, faith has to be personal. It has to be lived out. If you go back to the story we read, a few verses later, it says this in verse 13. Abraham hears God say that she's going to bear a son. She laughs. She says to herself, how is this even possible? God knew Sarah laughed. See, in Genesis 17, when God told Abraham, the chapter before, when when God told Abraham that he was going to have a son, Abraham laughed too. But I think God knew Abraham's laugh. Because there's a contrast that's happening in these two stories. See, Abraham laughed at the promise. But we can assume that since he wasn't rebuked by God, that his laughter was indeed a burst of joy. Maybe he was picturing in his mind, here's a hundred-year-old man being the father of an infant child. It seems clear enough from the fact that God rebuked Sarah that her heart was full of doubt at the giving of the promise. When God called Sarah on her laughter, she burst out of her tent and proclaimed, I didn't laugh, but God isn't fooled. Not by our clever words, not by our silent mouths. We can't fool God into thinking that we can trust him to work in us if we don't really trust him. Remember that verse in Hebrews 11? If Sarah hadn't had true faith, there had been no baby Isaac. But I want you to notice here that God doesn't rebuke Sarah strongly. God's reproof or God's encouragement was gentle because he knew that's all that Sarah needed, a gentle reminder that God is God and we're not. So friends, be honest with God if doubts arise in our hearts. If God is calling you to do something spectacular, it's going to take faith. But no amount of contrived or insincere faith will do the trick. God knows the inner hearts of us when we think that we know best. See, God always specializes in the impossible. God didn't ask Sarah to get pregnant, nor did he ask Abraham to make her so. God committed himself and his resources to make Sarah have a successful pregnancy. 
A miracle made all the more remarkable because it followed 90 years of Abraham and Sarah's failure to conceive. Friends, could it be something that God is asking you to do? Something that you feel totally inadequate to accomplish? What is it that God has asked you to do that you can't do? What call has God placed on your life that maybe you've shoved to the side or maybe you're even laughing at? Be assured of this. God supplies for the task that he calls. He is the God of the impossible. We can, in, we can trust him to equip us to do what he's called us to do. All right, let's look at Mary. A highly favored woman in Luke chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 28. This story will be familiar to us. We recite it a lot at Christmas. The angel went to her and said in verse 28, Greetings. Mary, you're highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this may be. But the angel said to her in verse 30, Don't be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You're to call him Jesus. He'll be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendant forever. His kingdom will never end. Verse 34, isn't this a question we ask ourselves a lot? How will this be? Verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even your relative Elizabeth is going to have a child in her own age. And she who said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. Friends, verse 37, for no word from God will ever fail. I love Mary's response, a great lesson for us. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Jump down to verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies, my spirit rejoices in the God my Savior, for he has been mindful of my low estate. From now all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him. Verse, 52, he has perform, uh, verse 51, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. Verse 52, He has brought down rulers. He's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things. Has sent away the rich empty. He has helped His servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, forever, just as he promised. See, the author Luke, why we chose this, the author Luke actually wanted us to see Mary's attitude toward the birth of Christ as an example on how we are to live. We need to be reminded as believers in Christ that we too can be used by God. We too can be blessed by God in a great and mighty way. See, there's no evidence that, that tells us that Mary was thinking she was more exceptional or different than anyone else. She realized that above all women, she was fortunate to be the one who would bear the Christ child. 
Unfortunately, we don't understand all the reasons why Mary, above all women, was chosen to carry the Savior. Maybe it could have been because of her humility, her humbleness, the way that she was submissive before God. See, in humility, she recognized her son was the Savior. I love verse 48. For he has been mindful of the humble state of my servant. For all now all generations will call me blessed. Friends, God is always looking for a humble vessel that he can use for his glory. It's wonderful that God can take nobodies and make somebodies out of them. God is not looking for wealth. He's not looking for rank. He's not looking for honor. He's looking for a lowly servant who is willing to be used. Mary put her hope in the promises of God. See, Mary, we think, knew Scripture. She recalled from Scripture what God had done in past generations. She rejoiced that she was chosen to bear the Messiah that was prophesied so long ago. For the Mighty One has done great things in me. Holy is His name. So let's review today before we walk into communion. The very first one, our lives must have a holy fear of what God can do through us. So what kind of fear do you have in your life? Just like Shipra and Pua. The, the, the second one, the decisions that we make in life must benefit God's call on our life rather than our own needs and wants. So what do we need to surrender? What do we need to put in the basket just like Moses' mom? God's call, the third one, God's call on our life sometimes doesn't make sense. It might even cause us to laugh, just like Sarah. What has God called you to? And then that final one, would God look at you and describe you like he did Mary? A highly favored woman. Would God trust you with his own? Let me pray. We're going to transition into communion. If you can grab your communion elements, I'll walk you through this. But let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for being a God who gave us great stories of powerful women through your text. God, we thank you for what Shipra and Pua and Moses' mom and Mary and Sarah teach us. Not just teach us for other women, but teach us for ourselves. We thank you that you're a God who continually is calling and working in our lives. We love you. We are so thankful that you call us. We ask all this in your most powerful name. Amen. One of the, the cool things that we get to do as a church as the family of God, as the sister and brotherhood of believers is, we get to celebrate communion. Now, there's nothing magical with these communion elements. These communion elements are pretty simple elements. One of them represents the body of Christ, the humanness of Christ. The other one represents kind of that supernatural, that the forgiveness of sins, something we don't understand. The only requirement for you to, to participate in communion is that you've accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I don't think there would be a better time than at communion to accept Christ into your heart if you haven't. 
That gift is represented so clearly in communion. Now, when Jesus gathered his disciples, he looked at them and said, I have eagerly waited for this day. Like my 33 and a half years on life is culminating in this day. Like this is what I was sent to do. This is the fulfillment of everything that was told in the Old Testament. All those prophets who said there's going to be a savior. I am him. And the disciples struggled to understand it. There's a lot going on. Jesus had, had rode into the town and people were proclaiming how great he was and now they're getting ready to kill him. And there's all kinds of emotions that were attached to it. And at times it's hard for us because when we talk about God, we, we struggle to get an image of what that is. Some of our images of God would be somebody who has their arms crossed, who's always frustrated with us, and that's not God. For some of us, we have a, an image that God is some distant God that is not interested in, in what's happening in our life, and that's not the right image of God. And one of the images that's hard for us is to understand the humanness of Jesus, that it was a choice that he made to go to the cross. This wasn't an, a drama or something that just kind of had to happen in a, in a kind of Hollywood way, that there was actually great pain of being all alone. Just like you and I feel all alone at times. When we feel abandoned, Jesus felt like that. And so with the communion elements, it's kind of a cool thing that Christ has created for us. When you take the bread and just hold the bread for a second, the bread would have been a utensil that the disciples used. Some of you can remember your, your dad or your grandpa. At the end of the meal, he'd get a piece of bread and he'd make sure that plate was clean. The disciples didn't have spoons and forks. They would have used bread. That was what they would have eaten with. And, and so as Jesus was talking about the bread, we know it's the bread of life. But he also looked and went, my body is going to be broken for you. And, and with the body that's broken for you, it's going to be something that you can see humanly. It's right in front of you. And you're going to feel all the things that I'm feeling. And we know that. Peter, when he was asked, do you know Jesus? He went, no, I don't know Jesus. To a young girl. The disciples all left. And here's Jesus with his mother seeing her son taking on the sins of the world. It was a dark time. And so you and I take the bread to remind us that Christ walked just in the same way you and I did. He dealt with the same things you and I did. And the 100% God and 100% man, the bread represents that 100% man. So let's take the bread together and proclaim to each other that we serve a God who is not dead, but is alive. Let's take bread together. Jesus, thank you that you are a God who is not dead, but is alive. We thank you that your body was broken for us. I want you to grab the, the cup, and this is the really exciting part. 
See, the, the, the cup represents blood, and that's hard for us to understand, but the Old Testament people, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years of silence. That would have killed God. Because God's a communal God. God wants to dwell with his people. And in the Old Testament times, you brought the best and you sacrificed it to God as your way of continuing that relationship with God. And Jesus shows up and goes, I'm the ultimate sacrifice. I am the lamb. My blood is for the forgiveness of sins, and my blood allows you and I to do what we do today, to talk to a God who longs to dwell, to commune with his people. And in that one act, suddenly we see uh, a relationship restored that was broken all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. And so today we, we drink the the new covenant, which allows us to have forgiveness of sins. Let's take together. God, thank you. What a great God you are. We love and adore you. May you be honored in our worship. We ask all this in your name. Amen.